Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. And welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Tuesday afternoon. Our number here, 403-974-8255. We are about two hours away from the press conference featuring the Premier and others. What appears as though, from what we're hearing, new health restrictions are to be announced. We'll find out for sure what those are coming up at 4 o'clock. We will have that for you live. Off the top in this hour, I want to take a closer look at uh, where things are headed in the new year uh, concerning food prices and our grocery bills. And, And look, Canadians have been under a lot of financial pressure as a result of this pandemic. Uh, And so there's some bad news uh, on this front. Uh, Canada's food price report for 2021 predicts an overall food price increase of 3 to 5% as COVID-19 alters consumer behavior and affects food prices in some cases in some surprising ways. Uh, The food price report uh, put together from uh, researchers at Dalhousie University, University of Guelph, University of Saskatchewan and UBC. Joining us uh, to talk more about it is uh, one of those who was involved, Professor Simon Simoji, who's Errol Chair in the Business of Food at the University of Guelph. Uh, Professor Simoji, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. All right. So, I mean, should we be surprised, uh, first of all, at at this finding that we're going to see a three to five percent increase in, in food prices next year? Yeah, we were, were hoping for some good news for our from our report, but unfortunately, as you said, it, it, it's not great news. It's, it's a, a three and a half, three to five percent increase across the board for 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 food next year. So, for an a- average family of four, that's about thirteen thousand nine hundred dollars uh, per year. So that increases about seven hundred dollars from twenty twenty. Uh, we we weren't surprised too much. Um, we know that there's been a lot of Issues in the food supply chain this year that have that have compounded to then uh, work on that our predictions for next year, but it's a bit it's unfortunate. Well, and there's a lot going on here. I mean, on the surface, it might seem like you know consumers are being squeezed by some of these big grocery chains that have actually fared pretty well this year mm. uh, in terms of their profits. But th- this isn't just a case of, of grocery stores deciding that they're going to raise their prices. There are all kinds of, of supply and demand factors at play here, it seems. Definitely. There's a number of factors that are going into this rise. So across the food supply chain, from farm to, to wholesale processing, re- including retail, they've had, they've had greater costs. They've had greater costs in sanitization, uh, PPE costs, you know, other costs associated with distancing workers, and all those costs uh, are put at each level of the chain and pushed down to, unfortunately, us at the end. When it, when it comes to food prices, generally speaking, and this is pre-pandemic as well, there's two main factors that influence the, the price we pay in Canada, and that, that's the Canadian dollar exchange rate with the US, and particularly as we import a lot of food, 
and oil. Now, oil has been pretty low, but the, the dollar, I mean, back in March when we went into lockdown, the dollar really dropped low, below 70 US cents, and that hurt things as well. So we think the Canadian dollar, although it's quite high at the moment, uh, might drop into, into next year. What about some of the border uh, restrictions? I mean, obviously, we, we've had exceptions for, you know, the transport of, of goods, but, but is, is that having an impact still? Uh, not really. Uh, we've had very good logistics systems throughout the whole of the pandemic, and we expect that into, into next year. We did see those outages at the beginning of, of, the, of the pandemic in our grocery stores. We, you know, we saw panic buying that you know, left shelves bare of toilet paper and flour and yeast and those sort of things. But, but those outages were reasonably short term. There were a, a few weeks. Uh, but the border has been open. Um, I think if the border had been closed, things would have been a lot worse. And and if you think about it, you know, obviously demand was outstripping supply for the, you know, toilet paper, flour, those sort of things. But, you know, we, we still had bananas, oranges, uh, all those things that we, have to, we import from elsewhere. How do these increases that we're, we're anticipating next year, how do they compare to previous years? Because it, it feels like it's a big jump, is it, historically? Uh, usually we have about a, a two, uh, and yeah, quite high. And and I think you know what we what we also look at, and I should mention is that we we, we take that three to five analysis based on each province, whether or not you'll be higher in that three to five range or sort of lower. Uh, for Alberta, we're expecting it to sort of be in that lower range, in that in that three percent. Uh, area so that that's a little bit of comfort it's interesting too because you know there, there are certainly guidelines uh, that health canada has when it comes to healthy eating and you mm. know making those those smarter decisions but you know you, we talked a bit about you know the the pressure uh, on the canadian dollar and, and how that's driving up the cost of vegetables many of which mm. are, are imported into canada so i guess eating healthier is is going to come with a bigger price tag isn't it it is it is tricky in our in our report we're Predicting a four and a half to six and a half percent increase in the price of vegetables, and as you said, Rob, it's it's the importation. We we import anywhere between sixty five percent and ninety percent of the vegetables that we we eat in Canada, depending on the time of the year. Particularly in winter, we have to import you know closer to ninety percent. So we you know the health, as you said, Health Canada wants us to eat more vegetables, but you know there are ways of of getting vegetables a little bit cheaper. You know, check out the frozen food aisle. I always tell people, you know, frozen broccoli, carrots, peas, berries. Um, you know, they might look at, look or taste as good as the fresh product, but, you know, they're snap frozen when they're uh, were harvested, which locks in the nutrients, and they're a lot cheaper, and particularly around those winter months. Um, a lot of that fresh product has taken a long distance to get to us in Canada, uh, its nutritional value is questionable. So I'd really be pushing people to have a look at that frozen arm because uh, it's just as good, but it's cheaper. Well, and I guess, yeah, there, there, there are a lot of different ways people can try to strategize. I mean, certain cuts of meat, uh, you know, for example, mm. are going to be cheaper than others. Certain kinds of meat will be cheaper than others. Mm. Obviously, there's still competition amongst the, the grocery store chains. And so perhaps there's a way to mm. you know, shop for the lowest price. So, I mean, how, how much power do consumers have then, you know, in, in the face of potential price increases uh, of trying to protect their own bottom line? Well, you know, as, as we talked about, it's a bit tough. It's you know, a, a three-ish percent increase when Canadians 
salaries are going up one, maybe two percent, and you know the price of foods already high. Um, you know, we can be a little bit picky. Yeah, the frozen vegetables is, a, is an example. Um, you know, I think the the big issue we have in Canada is each year we see in our report. And I've been on this report for five years now, and it's been going for eleven years. We see those vegetables each year, four to five percent increases. Um, we need to come up with a strategy in Canada for producing more vegetables. And and I think there is something that's possible. We've, we have about 5,000 acres of, of greenhouses in Canada, uh, and many of those produce, you know, tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, uh, some berries as well, and most of that goes to the U.S. But what's happened is we, we've seen a downturn in the cannabis sector where a few years ago they were building lots of greenhouses uh, and now a lot of them are uh, laying dormant. So I think it's it's a good opportunity for the government to stimulate the production of, of, of fresh vegetables in Canada, particularly with with all the uh, empty greenhouses that we sit, have sitting out there that were, were sitting before with lots of um, with cannabis in there. So there's an opportunity there, I think. What about for restaurants? I know we're talking a lot about uh, grocery stores and grocery bills, but uh, obviously this has an impact on the restaurant industry. And we were talking earlier just about how, you know, how hard hit the restaurant industry has been this year. Um, so, so this is something that they're going to have to deal with. And, and so for people who, who like to eat out, uh, you know, go to their favorite restaurants or order in, we'll probably see those increases on that side too, won't we? Yeah, we've we've looked at the uh, the restaurant category for the coming year, and we're sort of expecting that same three to five percent increase, which makes sense because each level of the food supply chain incurs costs, and they have to then push that down to obviously restaurants that we we buy from. So, um, you know, they've had it tough. You know, the, they've had to shift their businesses to having smaller number of people in a larger space, and for many sort of high service or you know. Uh, higher price restaurants. This is not part of their of their business plan. So it's going to be really tough for them. I think the the silver lining here is we're, we're going to have a vaccine soon, and mm-hmm. and people want to eat out. They just can't at the moment, or they're they're too scared. So my, my gut feeling is that once we have a widespread vaccine out there, people will not only want to go out and enjoy restaurants, but they'll be working more. They'll be commuting more. Uh, they'll want the convenience that comes with eating out and restaurants plays into that world you know other things like click and collect and meal kits and delivery apps uh that you know, grocery stores and restaurants also have also plays into that as well so i think there's going to be some opportunities in the, in the future for restaurants to bounce back well, and as we look into the future, and it can be difficult to, to predict, obviously, as, as you mentioned, but, you know, given that a lot of what's driving the increase going into 2021 is is related to the pandemic, uh, assuming, you know, we have widely available vaccines that we're able to, to make a big dent, if not end the pandemic altogether, do you, do you think this 3 to 5% increase for this coming year, that it's going to be a, a bit of a blip, that 2022 would be looking much more favorable? I think the, the, the increased cost that the supply chain has incurred because of uh, because of COVID, what I mentioned before, sanitization, PPE, distancing workers. A lot of that is sort of being built into current prices and we expect that to spill over into into twenty twenty one, hence the three to five percent increase rather than a, a typical two to four percent increase. So I, I think that yeah, the the good news is that this is more of a blip as you said, and that going into twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three we should see some settling to a point where we might even see a slight decrease in, in some of the prices for those years. All right, well, we'll leave it there. Simon, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Rob.
Take care. Uh, that is Simon Samoji. He is uh, Errol Chair in the, the Business of Food at the University of Guelph and uh, part of this project uh, looking at the uh, food prices for the coming year. So, yeah, uh, an, un, an unusually high increase, typically maybe 2 to 4%. We're looking at 3 to 5% in the coming year. Uh, so the Canada Food Price Report, as mentioned, Dalhousie University, University of Guelph, University of Saskatchewan, University of British Columbia, all involved in, in putting this together. So a lot of pressures related to the pandemic that are having an impact uh, on the uh, the cost of food. So something you're going to see in your grocery bill or your restaurant tab in the new year. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. You can reach us at 403-974-TALK, 974-8255. We'll have some more time for your calls later in this hour. A lot more still to get to this afternoon. Don't forget, 4 o'clock this afternoon, we'll have live for you the press conference featuring uh, Premier Jason Kenney, Health Minister Tyler Shandro, the Chief Medical Officer of Health as well. Sounds like maybe some new restrictions being announced, but we'll find out for sure in about three hours. Now, in provinces that have imposed additional restrictions, specifically those that have have closed indoor dining, there's been a conversation happening around the food delivery apps that customers then become even more reliant on than they already are. And certainly, I think throughout this year, there's been a lot more ordering in. And it's a convenient way, right, to have one of those apps on your phone, you pull it up, whatever you're in the mood for, it's all kind of right there at the tip of your fingers, so there's convenience, which is clearly the, the appeal. But there, there are the realities of how this all works and how it can cut into the bottom line of these restaurants. And it's a bit of a catch-22 for those restaurants, right? Because these are the services people are using. You want to make sure you're there as an option. But, you know, there's, there's a financial hit involved. So it doesn't make sense to try to rein some of that in. The, um, the question of, of whether there's a, a need for regulation has become very relevant. Some provinces are looking at maybe trying to put a cap on some of those fees. But it doesn't make sense to do that. Joining us uh, to talk more about uh, some of these questions, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Professor uh, Michael Von Masso. He's a food economist at the University of Guelph. Professor Von Masso, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So as I mentioned, this is getting attention, I know, in, in your province and, and elsewhere in Canada, even in, in the U.S. as well. What, what seems to be the, the chief concern here? Well, I think, I think what's happening is that uh, restaurants are struggling. Uh, volumes are down. Costs are up. And, and for many, delivery is becoming sort of a lifeline to keep them open. And if they're using the delivery offered by these big app companies... They're actually giving away a lot of the uh, a lot of the margin in the fees that those companies charge. So, uh, people are saying in the short term, can we rein some of those fees in to help these these restaurants survive? Restaurants are not high margin businesses, so if you're taking thirty percent out of a uh, 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 out of their margins, you're you're often leaving them in a negative uh, in a negative position, particularly as costs are going up now. So in terms of how this works, I mean, it's it's not just that a delivery fee is being tacked on to the order, right? So it's not as though, uh, you know, the restaurant's selling that, that meal for the same price as if you had come in and bought it. So what, what tends to be the model for these, these services, and why does it represent a hit to, to restaurant? Well, these, re- these, 
uh, a we're not charging the full cost of delivery so then the some of the margins coming out of the out of the restaurant the other thing is that these delivery companies quote unquote delivery companies are trying to consolidate customers within their platform so people aren't choosing to go to this restaurant they're choosing to go to that app and then choosing what to buy and so then ownership of that customer get becomes vested in the app rather than with that rather than with the restaurant and so the the app companies argue that they're creating value by making it easier to find these restaurants uh, and so they're also facilitating the transaction uh, mm-hmm. rather than rather than it happening right at the restaurant. So they have costs inherent in that process too and, and, and are sort of trying to change the business model for our interaction uh, with those restaurants. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, you can make an argument that this doesn't really benefit either of those parties. Maybe it, it works well for the consumer, but uh, the restaurants, you know, there, there's there's a downside for the restaurants. And even for these delivery services... There's not a great profit margin there, is there? Well, the the irony is is that right before COVID and even now, uh, these app companies aren't making uh, money. They're trying to build volume to 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 justify the big investments they've made in infrastructure. The drivers aren't making a ton of money. In fact, mm-hmm. they're probably and 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 there have been fights between drivers and these companies over time to say, look, we can't survive. And so uh, the the business model is kind of flawed because no one in the process is is, is making money right now. And that's one of the sort of downfalls potentially of regulation is you're essentially robbing Peter to pay Paul here. Uh, and, and there may be some value in doing that in the short run. In the long term, this service just needs to cost more. And, and if customers like it, if consumers like it, they have to pay enough for it that these companies and the restaurants and the drivers can all survive and continue to do it. It's funny because food delivery existed long before these apps, existed long before the Internet. Uh, the idea of, of having a pizza delivered, I mean, that's a service that has existed for, well, literally decades. So how did something so simple become something so complicated? Well, it, 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 you make a good point. Fundamentally, it, it, it's about the cost model that you're using here to, to uh, interact with the customer. So with, the, with pizzas... The cost of delivery has been built into those pizzas for a long time. They are a lower cost item. We're willing to pay for it. We're used to that model. If you then look at someone who has historically had a dine-in business model, they have a bigger dining room than a pizza joint will have. They have more staff than a pizza joint will have. And their food costs are likely higher than a pizza joint is. The food cost is the proportion of of the total price that... Uh, uh, that is represented by the cost of the food that went into that. So that means there is less margin built in to change and now start delivering, right? We still have the infrastructure of a dining room. We still have all of those things. And so uh, the the cost is much higher. The other thing is that, that they're, although they're now doing most of their business in delivery, in the long run, their business isn't about delivery and so the reason these apps came in is to say you don't have to have your own dedicated delivery person like the pizza joint might have. 
you can sort of leverage a little bit of business through an exist through our delivery. So the the problem becomes both the volume and the context for that, uh, and and the specific type of restaurant that you're looking at. The, the, the other thing to keep in mind is we've also now built this sort of platform that is supposed to make it easy to order from a whole bunch of different players, which is different. You, you won't go on to Uber Eats to order from your favorite pizza joint necessarily. You'll go order pizza directly from your favorite pizza joint and they'll deliver it. And mm-hmm. so we've put another middleman into this process that needs to, to get their pound of flesh as well. Pardon the pun. Right. So what what would be the consequence, do you think, then, if, if governments were to step in and, and put a limit or a cap on uh, the fees that these, these services can charge? Well, I think in the short term, it might help some restaurants survive. And that's important because even the delivery apps don't survive if there are no restaurants to buy from. Uh, I think you need to be careful. Regulation is hard, and, and often we get unintended consequences of regulation. So, in fact, if apps are required to charge less. Remember, they're not making money either. We're going to squeeze drivers. We're going to squeeze the apps. They might start dropping unprofitable restaurants. They might start dropping unprofitable markets. So we might not get what what the objective is. That said, there's probably some value in doing this in the very short term just to make sure the whole system survives. Well, what do you mean by survives? That that we might not have, uh, you know, the, the same number of services in, in the weeks or months ahead. Well, I think if I, 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 I think this pandemic has been profoundly difficult for the restaurant industry. I think probably, yeah. you know, you might argue the airline industry, but but the restaurant industry has been hit hard. And if they continue to be shut down, while they continue to have costs like rent and others. Uh, we could see a significant number of restaurants close. Now, when we emerge, hopefully uh, we will see a different world, but we'll see some of these, uh, some new restaurants come around. But I think that there's a very real risk that that we lose a substantial number of these small local businesses that are so integral to communities. Well, I mean, if, if we accept the premise, then, that, that government should intervene, uh, you know, in, in this case, uh, the idea of regulation, you know, what about uh, uh, more of an intervention? Should governments be stepping in with some, some additional targeted support for restaurants? Should there be some kind of uh, in- incentive for people to, to be, you know, ordering in? Or is, is there more support that could be offered? Well, I think there, there are a variety of things that you could try. I know in Britain they offered a, an incentive program that I know the federal government thought about to get people to eat out, to get people to order in where they'd pay a portion of that, uh, of that bill. Uh, that, that becomes, I mean, that works for the restaurants that get orders, but it doesn't necessarily work for restaurants that are not in areas that they can get orders. So I think, I think that that's... Uh, I think that whatever you try and do from an intervention perspective has uh, benefits and costs. And so I think anything needs to be carefully considered. Uh, this measure, uh, rather than saying, you know, if, if, you're, if, you're, if we accept the fact that everyone is losing money, then maybe an incentive to, rather than capping the fees, uh, uh, an incentive uh, or a, a rebate on those fees might be a way of keeping everyone in the game better 
than uh, than just saying, okay, we're going to take it away from you and give it to you, uh, which which seems a little bit less fair. It's always nice mm-hmm. to pick on the big companies in support of the small. But if the app companies disappear or pull out of specific markets, we haven't achieved anything. We'll let people know you've uh, written about this, so uh, folks can read more. It's, uh, the website is foodfocusguelph.ca. Professor Von Massa, thanks for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. All right, you as well. That is uh, Michael Von Massa. He's a food economist at the University of Guelph, uh, so you can read more at uh, foodfocusguelph.ca. So... I, I think his point about maybe the unusual circumstances we're dealing with at the moment and, and kind of the, the real threat to, to restaurants, that maybe the idea of capping these fees in the short term, maybe there's an argument to be made. Otherwise, it's it's kind of a market-distorting sort of intervention. But it's something to be aware of. You know, the convenience of the skip the dishes and Uber Eats is obvious. You know, and in our household, and we, we just went through, well, really, almost four weeks of of isolation. There's there's an obvious appeal there. You know, the idea of just getting on the phone, getting on the app, having the food show up at your door, it is pretty convenient. Uh, but it, it is something to keep in mind at the same time. So if you've got local restaurants that, that you're quite fond of, that you're worried about whether they're going to survive, you know, there, there are ways of supporting them directly, right? If you're able to go pick up an order, then, you know, go do it. Maybe they do their own delivery. Find out if they do. So, yeah, just to be aware that, that this does undercut the restaurants and, you know, there, there is that convenience, obviously, for the consumer. There's a real dilemma for restaurants because you could just tell these delivery services to take a hike. But then you're not listed there, right? You, you don't show up. So when someone goes on their app and thinks, well, what do I want for dinner? They're going through the options. You're not there. They're not going to see you. So, it, yeah, it really is a catch-22. A lot to get to in the program here still this afternoon, but I want to begin in this hour with some interesting new research regarding peanut allergies. And, and this adds to a growing body of evidence that's prompting a bit of a rethink when it comes to peanuts and how to avoid these allergies in the first place. Because there's been that lingering question for some time. Why did we see a rise in peanut allergies in countries like Canada in the U.S.? Does it have anything to do with our, our approach to introducing peanuts and peanut products? Because the message for a long time was that those should maybe be avoided, you know, until kids are at least a year or older, because we were concerned about these, these allergies. But maybe there is a connection there. Because we can look to countries, Israel's been a really interesting example, where there's some popular peanut-based products that are actually targeted at very young children. And it's a country where peanut allergies tend to be relatively rare. Is there maybe a connection there? So as I say, we, we've seen some, some research suggesting that maybe there is a connection. Maybe early exposure can actually help reduce the risk of allergies. So a new study now from the University of British Columbia is adding to that body of evidence. The study published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice replicated research showing that exposing young children to a small regular dose of peanuts significantly reduce their allergic reaction. So it's the first study to really demonstrate all of this in a real-world setting as opposed to a a clinical trial. So joining us to talk a bit more about um, 
you know, what we, we understand about all of this and uh, what this new study adds to our understanding. We're pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Edmund Chan who's uh, head of the Division of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology at UBC's Faculty of Medicine, also a clinical uh, investigator at BC's Children's Hospital Research Institute. Dr. Chan, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, we, we talk about this as, as more of a real-world study as opposed to, to a clinical study. What, what was unique about the approach that you took here, first of all? Yeah, that's correct. So with preschoolers, there's been a clinical trial published a few years ago showing really good safety and efficacy. But we wanted to see if in a larger number of children treated in the real world, uh, so an allergist office either in the hospital or in the community, whether we could replicate those findings. And we published last year the safety data showing it's very safe in preschoolers. And uh, this latest publication is showing effectiveness after one year of maintenance treatment. So what does it tell us then about, you know, the, the, the question of exposure and how that relates to, to allergies and allergic symptoms? Yeah, so, you know, uh, we were really happy to confirm in the real world that uh, in over 100 preschoolers, 117 preschoolers uh, who started treatment at around two years of age, that after one year of maintenance treatment, nearly 80% of those preschoolers were able to eat a full serving of peanuts without reaction, meaning that they were fully desensitized. And so these were children who, at the beginning of the treatment, would have had potentially anaphylactic reactions to peanuts. And even the 20% who reacted, they were able to increase the amount that they could eat peanut before reaction substantially uh, by roughly the equivalent of 13 peanuts. And we determined that they were partially desensitized. Now, from the patient perspective, often patients and families are more interested in if they go out to restaurants or to social gatherings, if they get an accidental exposure, can they get protection? And our study showed that more than 98% of the children uh, after that one year of treatment had uh, protection from 99% of accidental exposures, meaning that they could eat um, you know, products containing up to three or four peanuts equivalents uh, without mm-hmm. reaction. And, and so all of this really has made us uh, very pleased because uh, this could really improve quality of life and decrease anxiety uh, and help with daily living for these families. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not necessarily that the allergy has been cured or overcome, but it's, it's, it's clearly reducing the, the potential severity of it, right? That's correct. In order for there to be a cure, uh, there has to be the outcome of of long-term tolerance, which uh, is defined in different ways. But one way is you stop eating the peanut after doing treatment for a while. And then uh, despite stopping it, the peanut allergy doesn't come back. Um, So that wasn't the uh, objective of this particular study. Um, In clinical trials, that has been evaluated at most at four to eight weeks. So that's where you stop eating the peanut after treatment for 48 weeks and, and the allergy doesn't come back. And there's some mixed results at this stage. Um, in preschoolers, it seems to be quite strong, but we do need more confirmation of that. So once we get to that outcome long term, then we can maybe more easily use the word cure. But at this point, it's uh, really protection from accidental exposures and uh, desensitization. Those are the proper terms. 
Yeah. So this approach, which is known as, as oral immunotherapy. So, so this is something, and I guess it's important to stress because as you, as you noted, uh, that there is a safe way to do this, but it, I guess it's something that, you know, it, it certainly needs to be taken with some caution. So what is the oral immunotherapy approach? And, and, you know, what do people need to know? Because obviously you don't want necessarily parents sort of experimenting with all of this on their own. So how do you go about doing this in, in a safe way? That's correct. Yeah, we, we do want to make safety the utmost priority. So at this stage of our understanding of implementation, it needs to be uh, physician-led and supervised. Uh, and so uh, the allergists who have uh, training and expertise in doing this should be properly diagnosing the preschooler with uh, true peanut allergy because the tests themselves can be difficult to interpret with uh, false positives, for example, or sometimes false negatives. And once that proper diagnosis has been made, sometimes requiring a, a, an oral food challenge for confirmation, uh, then the first dose should be given together with the allergist uh, a very small amount. So, um, you know, just, just something that is difficult to fathom how small, but uh, we, we work with the parents to make them understand that tiny dose is the initial dose that's supervised. They maintain that dose for at least two weeks, and then they return to the allergist for a buildup to the next dose. And that cycle repeats itself eight to ten times. And after about five months or so uh, in our study, the children reached a maintenance dose, which is the equivalent of about one peanut or 300 milligram of protein. And then they maintained that for a full year before we repeated the oral food challenge to see how much they could tolerate the maximum amount they could tolerate. So that sort of in a nutshell is, is uh, the sequence. How does this change our overall understanding of you know, the problem of peanut allergies and, and why it seems to be more of an issue in, in Western countries like Canada and this idea of you know, exposure as opposed to kind of the, the, uh, the approach we've taken in the past? Yeah, well, what it really helps with is solidify that targeting, targeting the youngest ages possible are key. So um, you mentioned uh, in your preamble, and, and it was a really good summary, Rob, that to prevent peanut allergy, you have to introduce non-choking peanut very early in infancy. That's what the latest research is showing. So that's around six months of age. And you have to maintain that, for example, several times a week. And that is very effective for preventing peanut allergy. However, sometimes it's not so easy to implement and you still may have despite best intentions children developing peanut allergy and so what this study says that if despite introducing very early to a baby you haven't prevented peanut allergy you should still continue on that mindset to do things at the very young ages in the preschool age so this treatment of oral immunotherapy it shouldn't be delayed until a child is six 10, 14 years of age, because doing that could really increase the chance of the reaction becoming more severe, increase the risk of uh, children uh, developing increased anxiety, uh, them being bullied, them being socially isolated. Um, and so for so many good reasons, the oral immunotherapy should be done really as soon as the peanut allergy is diagnosed, uh, uh, you know, in that uh, sort of very young infant toddler stage. Some important new research. We'll leave it there. Dr. Chan, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Take care.
All right, you as well. Uh, that is Dr. Edmund Chen, uh, head of the Division of Pediatric Allergy and Immuno Immunology at UBC's Faculty of Medicine, also with the BC Children's Hospital Research Institute. So kind of some real-world evidence to, to back up what other clinical uh, trials have showed us about this kind of an approach, which is really encouraging because, you know, living with a peanut allergy is, is a real challenge, right? And so we, we know, and we've certainly heard the stories of, you know, what it's like for parents and for kids to, to you know, have to navigate that every single day. And so the, the idea that, you know, we can make a, a meaningful and a measurable difference when it comes to kids and the risk, especially for young kids, and, and this is huge news. So some really encouraging um, results in this study. And, and adding to that body of evidence about how maybe we can take a different approach when it comes to these allergies. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.